Hey, uh, Jordan here. Welcome to episode 52 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. 52, that's a year. That is crazy. And if you've been with us since the beginning, we are very, very grateful uh, for your support and attention for a full year. What a what an occasion. Uh, and if this is your first time checking out the Chocolate Croissants podcast, which we're expecting, uh, especially due to our guest this week, uh, welcome. If you're unfamiliar with what this is, it is a weekly podcast. And most of the topics with the guests that we're focused on uh, lying in, in the fields of self-improvement and creative entrepreneurship, I thought our guest this week, James Musselwhite, uh, is the epitome uh, of both of these things that we're so interested in uh, within ourselves and our own creative paths, but also exploring with others. Uh, James is someone that I met through Ring of Honor Wrestling. He is a photographer out of the UK, uh, and he's someone who has this classic narrative of uh, having a, a passion at an early age for photography and working his whole life to realize his dreams of uh, doing it in a way that supports him financially, but also makes him feel alive as the uh, in, in the work itself with, uh, with the subject of pro wrestling now. Uh, we think you'll really enjoy this episode. Uh, this week, it's a solo one for me and uh, and our guest, James. We actually tried with uh, Matt the, the day before James and I got this conversation that you're going to hear, uh, but a thunderstorm knocked out his internet, which uh, threw the whole thing into shits, and uh, James was very flexible and kind with his time. Uh, to make it happen for us this week. Uh, very briefly, Rode Microphones. There are they're our flagship sponsor since episode one. Holy shit. What a great company they are. They've been super supportive uh, to us. R-O-D-E.com. Right now, I am using the NT-USB microphone. Super simple. I just plug it into my laptop and I can record. Uh, but when we do recordings in person, we use the Procasters. Uh, R-O-D-E.com. Check out all of their microphone options. Whether you want to record your voice for a podcast, whether you're recording instruments in a band or whatever it may be, uh, Rode, out of Australia, they can hook you up. So episode 52, James Musselwhite, portraitofarestler.com. Uh, it's a really engaging conversation. He's a really smart guy. He's a very talented guy. Uh, he's articulate, and he has a really good mind for building business and relationships long-term. I think you'll get a lot out of this. Uh, you don't need to be a photographer. You don't need to care about pro wrestling to get value out of this. Uh, his tactics, his strategies, his mindset, they are universal for whatever you are interested in and whatever you want to achieve. So it is my great pleasure to introduce James Musselwhite, episode 52 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. The music starts now. James Musselwhite. Hello. Are you you're there, my friend? I am. And we've been talking for like the past hour. <laughs> Pretty much. And we <laughs> talked for about that length of time yesterday, which yeah. uh for those listening right now would have been uh uh Wednesday afternoon yes. at the end of March. We're starting this podcast two hours in. Right? <laughs> it's been great. It's flown by. Yeah. So I know I know you live in England, uh, and we have 
really only 60% of the listeners to these episodes are in the United States. So there's a lot over in the UK. So where exactly are you? I'm down on the south coast in a, a, a city called Portsmouth, which is like the, one of the homes, well, they say it's the home of the Royal Navy. So it was a huge naval tradition here um, uh, down on the south coast. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's okay. I like it. It's near the coast. I like being near the beach. It's nice. Oh, you have a beach. Yeah, we have a... Yeah, it's it's well Portsmouth's an island, but it's it looks like it's attached to the southern part of of England, but it's actually there is water sort of separating it from the land, so it is it does have an island mentality, I suppose. Uh, but I enjoy it. And that's where you grew up? Not at all. No, I, I grew up sort of sixty miles down the road in a place called Bournemouth, which does have a lovely beach. That's seven miles of golden sand, and it's uh, it's a beautiful place to go. And I still go back there once in a while. But it's only a short trip just down the road, just to get down here to to Portsmouth, and uh, yeah, moved down here about I think two thousand and three. So I've lived here a while now. But we met in New York City. Yes, we did. We did. So why don't you let our uh, our listeners know why would someone all the way over in the UK uh, be in, in New York City on a uh, uh, a snowy December day. It was brilliant, honestly. It was I couldn't believe it. when I landed in New York. It was snowing. It was like, and it was like what was it like seven days before Christmas? Mm-hmm, and, something like that. Uh, it's seven days before Christmas. It was the day of the Star Wars premiere, The Last Jedi, and I got to see that in Times Square. Just to set the mood, I got these Christmas films. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and. I can. I remember tweeting. I was just like, I wish I could meet my eight-year-old self and just tell him one day you're going to see the the premiere of Star Wars in Times Square. Like, and and then I saw the movie, and yeah. You're right. You know what? I forgot. <laughs> so so so. Uh, you know, as people know now by the intro, uh, James is a photographer. Portraitofarrestler.com. Yes. And 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 the wrestling promotion that I work with, Ring of Honor. Uh, we'll bring uh, you, James, over to our, our biggest events. Uh, we're actually going to meet up again uh, a week from now in New Orleans. Yes. Uh, for another big event. Um, I forgot that Final Battle, which is kind of like our year-end show, was the same night as the Star Wars premiere. And I still haven't seen that movie. Have you not seen it? Was it good? It's, um, it's a, it, uh, I think uh, my, my friend put it best where he said it was a, it's a good movie. It's not a Star Wars movie. Fair enough. I will see it at some point, but I've done when when they reintroduced the series a couple years ago. I did the full like premiere at the classic Baltimore Theater. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so we, we were um, yeah, so we did that, and then yeah, then we met at the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is like a, a wrestling mecca. Really, so many big things have happened there, and it was and, and the you know my my brilliant weekend just continued and uh, got to shoot the show there, meet you, meet all the talent. Uh, and just and then leave Manhattan on a really snowy evening to go over to uh, Philadelphia to go to another mecca of wrestling, the old ECW arena on the corner of Ratner Street in uh, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw the Rocky statue that day. I had Philly cheesesteak that day, and then just went to this arena and just you know photographed portraits all day. It was like the best. And you unveiled those uh, the new the new championships as well. And I was like, yeah. one of the, I was one of the first people in the world to see them. This, this is true, but even before the the talent saw them, before the ta- yeah, exactly, we had to keep the talent away. Do you remember? Uh, because they we didn't want them, we didn't want fingerprints all over the belts, and we wanted like them to be clean for the photography. Um, oh, what a weekend! It was brilliant. Right. Honestly, it was the best. 
I mean, I now can put on my resume that I was a lighting assistant. <laughs> you were a lighting assistant. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people get that job at wrestling shows. I can't afford to bring an entire entourage with me. So it's basically anyone with a pair of hands uh, gets roped into holding lights in various ways, which is good. And you took me to a Boston market and I saw an actual Chuck E. Cheese. Right. So excited. But we didn't, we didn't go inside the Chuck E. Cheese because, you know, you gotta, you gotta save some more for next time. I will do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, so yeah, I've never, uh, I've never seen Rocky. I've never had a cheesesteak, but the, the ECW arena, as it once was known, uh, just to give some context for the non-wrestling fans, which is probably 99% of the people listening to this, uh, <laughs> ECW as a wrestling promotion in, in the nineties was like the, the cool underground indie band that, that you're a fan of. Um, and uh, being so close in, in Baltimore to it, I, I had some access to, to seeing its programming in the nineties. And I don't know, did you ever see any ECW? Because like it was dial up internet at that point. Yeah. Back in the day, I mean, back in the day in the nineties, it was tapes. So you'd get right. on VHS tapes. I mean, and this is the bizarre thing about the world that we live in now is that you would go into like a record store, um, 1997 1998 and you would buy an ecw pay-per-view a single pay-per-view on tape for the equivalent of 20 dollars, and be happy with that purchase mm -hmm. and the all the online streaming sites have got every pay-per-view that every company has ever done you know for, for for half that price per month um yeah so we would we would have access to those and i remember owning a couple and just showing it to friends and saying because you, you see the you see the mainstream product and that's one thing but then there's this super thing here where they're they're setting tables on fire and they're throwing people off balconies and it's different and they swear and there's and it's just like it was just like mtv but with like the the volume turned way up for wrestling um yeah we did we did we did get it over here Okay, very cool. And, and, and honestly, like I see or feel a lot of similarities uh, between ECW and Ring of Honor, and not specifically the, uh, the, a brand of, of violence and, and kind of uh, leaning towards sexuality and, and things like that, but the sense that, that Ring of Honor has this authentic underground underdog feel to it and a rabbit fan base you get that this is the difference is in that a, a ring of honor crowd will at times during the show chant the name of the company mm -hmm. and with more mainstream organizations that doesn't happen that's and a good way to put it so they've put they've bought into the brand and the idea of, of a family like you're part of the ring of honor family if you're going to ring of honor and you understand about you're a little bit deeper inside the rabbit hole i suppose in terms of like wrestling fandom you feel um, connected, I think, in a more yeah. intimate way. And Ring of Honor uh, go out of their way to make sure that their fans, you know, at events have the best time possible, whether it be the meet and greets or the Q and A's and or just the experience at ringside, you know, that you get. And those and those arenas are tightly packed. Everyone's got a great seat. Everyone's got a good view. Everyone feels part of the a part of the action. It's nonstop. You know, as soon as one match ends, we're straight on to the next one. It is it is a great experience. Yeah, and, and I think uh, just to kind of wrap up the, uh, us meeting, I think just for you and I personally, that whole weekend was a great experience just because for different reasons, the, the Hammerstein uh, Ballroom in, in New York, which is literally in the center of Manhattan, right next to Penn Station, mm -hmm. uh, and across from Madison Square Garden, and then uh, this, this what was at one point a bingo hall in South Philadelphia, uh, rough around the edges, but just as historic uh, 
of of a location as a wrestling fan uh i, I think just that one-two punch was uh even for me like if if the the eight-year-old uh within me w- w- could have predicted that would have been my reality many years later uh, uh it would have been a special thing to know there was no there was no way you could have told me as an 18 year old wrestling fan watching ecw on the, on an old vhs videotape that my first trip to philadelphia to that arena would be to take pictures and to be working, to be working for a wrestling company there's no way i'd believe you yeah it's incredible and then when i look back on it it's like Man, on top of all that, I met this dude, James Musselwhite. What a guy. <laughs> Carry on. So, so, and, and Thank I told, you. I and, appreciate that. It's lovely. <laughs> yeah, dude. So, and I told you, uh, as, as we you know, were probably getting ready to part ways uh, that night in Philly, uh, you know, we were, I, I basically helped coordinate uh, talent for you to take their portraits that weekend. Yes. And, and so, uh, you know, as you referenced, we, we got some Boston market. We, we saw the entrance of a Chuck E. Cheese and, and, you know, we got to chat throughout our work, uh, those, those few nights. Um, and, and I told you, I was like, dude, at some point we're going to get you on chocolate croissants because just the more I learned about you and the more I experienced you, the more I watched you work, the more I watched you interact with, with the talent, uh, uh, my respect and continue to grow and my interest in you continued to grow. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we're doing this and I'm glad we're doing this in a public forum because I know that you have a lot of value to add to the listeners of this podcast, uh, whether they give a shit about pro wrestling or not. Um, I, I don't think, uh, the, the value has anything to do with pro wrestling in many ways. The value doesn't even have anything to do with photography, but uh, I, I think that the, the lessons and the philosophies that you'll share over the next hour or so uh, on creativity and entrepreneurship and, and networking and really just being a human being, I think, uh, universally translate uh, to, to all disciplines. That's very, that, thank you. That's, that, genuinely, thank you. It's very touching. It's a very nice thing to say. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I hope so. I mean, I always, I, I do a lot of photography seminars and, and a lot of it is under the title of, you know, a portrait of a wrestler or capturing the art of wrestling. And I'll be in, a, I'll be at a convention where there are people speaking about newborn photography or family portraits or wedding photography. And I'm always, you know, drawing slightly less numbers than everyone else. Uh, but the people that come to me, the, the feedback I get at the end of all my seminars is I came in expecting you to drone on about wrestling for two hours and mm. i'm so surprised about what i learn and what i can take away and how motivated i am to go out and just do whatever it is i do mm-hmm. um which is so i mean i think every, skills in creative arts are essentially transferable you know it is you know i do these beat well groups which are yes. drum based groups essentially but what i what i explain when when i work with people uh you know 90 plus percent of these people have never played an instrument uh especially improvised, but I'm like, this has nothing to do with drums. This has nothing to do with music. Uh, it's just the drum is the tool for, for these greater lessons and experiences. And that's, Uh, that's, and that's, and that's a testament to your creativity to find something different, to, to find a solution to a problem that people have been trying to solve for so long. You know, you, you have the creative mindset to go, no, I'm going to try and approach it from this angle. Uh, and I think, I think carving niches like that is so important. No, it's, it's kind of you to say, and, and, and yeah, I'll own the fact that it is unique and it, it, it definitely, 
uh, took guts to, to try to, you know, support myself financially, uh, at one point just doing that. Um, but, but for me, it was so obvious because rhythm, like, I honestly can't think of a more universal thing than rhythm. It's in everything from the individual, uh, cells in our bodies to, to the most celestial bodies in the universe. It's everything is rhythm. So it's natural. Mm. It's, uh, it, Cool. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's it's really just figuring out a way to effectively communicate that and then and then market the service to the public. Well, that yeah, but that's yeah, that that's essentially teaching. The best the best teachers, you know, find the best way to communicate lessons to their students. And there's no one way to do thing. You know, to 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 teach everyone everything. Otherwise, everyone would be on the same level. You know, my, the best yeah. teachers I've found are the ones that I react best to because they've, the, the, funnily enough, the, the people I react best to who, who've helped me in photography and helped my learning are the ones who've been the most blunt. I, I can't handle fluffiness and I can't handle people being gentle, gentle and nicey, nicey with me. I like, I, I'm very, as a creative, I'm actually, I'm, I, I find myself, I'm quite objective rather than subjective with information. Um, I, I like the... I like the mechanics of how a camera works. I like knowing that if I do this, that, you know, if I change one setting, I know what's going to happen directly. But then you get artists who are very sort of a, a bit more laissez-faire, a bit more laid back. Um, and I, I, I kind of struggle with that approach. I like, I like to learn things, learn the process of things, learn how things are going to happen and then try and implement, you know, like that. Uh, but That's probably why you're way more tech savvy than me. <laughs> Possibly. I think it's because I think even as a creative, uh, and I'll think of when I, when I have a quote performance, so whether it's actually performing music and, and I'm really just playing the role of performer or being a facilitator of people and experience, or even this podcast, like, uh, like I, 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 I am, I am very intentional in what I want to achieve. Um, I'm very mindful about the, the exchange uh, but there's a big part of me that as long as I reach that end point, like I don't give a fuck how I get there. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and the messier, the better, because then it's kind of exciting to me, which seems a bit different from the approach. It, it seems to be more natural for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think so. I think I just like to maybe, I think I, I kind of assimilate what is, what works and what doesn't. And I, very rarely revisit what doesn't if that makes sense sure um but the journey's the journey's half of it it's half of everything that we do you know not just your journey and your work or your life journey is all about making mistakes mm -hmm. we got deep pretty quick didn't we blimey yeah yeah, yeah man I, it's good though <laughs> uh it, it's funny man it's funny i like i i often get uh feedback from people uh of like man every time i talk to you like can we just have a normal conversation <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know. In, in many ways, it's fun to shoot the shit, but uh, we've got two I'm, hours of normal in the can, Let's right? Go. Yeah, <laughs> batting around wrestling, absolutely. Um, which is just as lovely as well. So, so I'm curious, James. Uh, can you think of like the one teacher in your life that really stands out, and and what was the one non-photography? lesson or bit of value that you got from that person oh blimey oh goodness gracious that is oh i'm thinking back now 
Blimey? Is yeah. that what you said? Blimey, blimey, blimey. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a ve- that's a very English phrase. Go like two ticks. Um, two yeah. T- <laughs> um, I think like two ticks, yeah. Um, the, I suppose my, my mentor, Kevin, who was my mentor for the longest time, Kevin Wilson, who's a really, really high quality, high end classical wedding photographer. Um, so quite different from what I do. Um, he told me that you, you've got two ears and one mouth. Try and use them in that sort of ratio with everything you do. I, I, I use that, that saying often. Yeah, so I know it's a well-used one, but he's the first one who, who told me. Uh-huh. Off the record, my first manager, who was the studio manager below the, the, the sort of like the manager of all of the studios in our region, um, he kept quiet when I dropped a £1,500 lens on my second day of work. Wow. On the top of a ladder. Holy shit. And it still made a creaking noise the day I left six years later. Wow. But he, he was the, uh, he was one of my ushers at my wedding. Incredible. Uh, so we, we, and we only met him last week again, just cause we, you know, he's got parents to my kids and all that sort of stuff. But he, yeah, he, he had so much patience with me in the early days when I didn't know an F stop from a bus stop. Um, and just patience and learning and just, I, I was ready to walk that day. I was ready to walk. I, I, it's suddenly flooding back to me. I was. I. I tried something different on day two that I shouldn't have done, and I tried to take an image from a high angle of a couple, and I got up a ladder, and I tried to change a lens at the top of a ladder, mm-hmm. and I and I dropped it, and he saw it, and he and I said to him after the shoot, I said, "I'm going." He said, "Where are you going?" I said, "I'm going home. I can't. I can't do this. I've 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 moved city for this job, and I'm at my depth." And he took me to the pub and we had a little bit too much to drink on our lunch break. And I came back and I shot four more sessions. Wow. And he was just like, it, it, and honestly, it wasn't even like a, it was, it was an arm around the shoulder moment, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't a pep talk or anything. It was just like, forget about it. So for context, what year was that? Uh, 2003. Okay. So that's like 15 years ago. Yeah. The company can't sue me for the lens cause they've gone bust. Sure. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, so, but I think it's important to mark that because as, as listeners start to become a bit more familiar with, with your journey and, and what you've accomplished, uh, like we all start somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it, there's a lot of creatives uh, listening to this that, that either feel like they're in year one of the, of the artistic process, whether that's learning guitar or learning how to build a website or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's also others that are in year one of trying to monetize that. Yes. And, and like patience is, is so key and, and playing a long game, uh, which we kind of chatted briefly about, uh, or before we started recording this audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess with, with the spirit of that in mind, when did photography come to you? Oh, I was eight years old. Um, okay so it was you you felt something for it as a as a kid i arrogantly thought i could take holiday pictures better than my family i was a hundred percent convinced of it and it was from years of of what of of looking at um holiday photos on Mm -hmm. slides or on these endless you know these endless sort of prints just being presented to you and i remember i tell the story at the time but i remember just seeing it was just like a beach after a beach after a, a, a hill and then another beach and then the sea and I was just like I was just so bored as a kid and then this photo came up of my granddad um 
and it was it was portrait and it was it was half length and he filled the frame and he was eating spare ribs in a pub and you can see the mahogany wood behind him and he's wearing a crisp white shirt because he always dressed up for dinner and mm. short sleeves so you can see his tanned arms because he worked outside um he was he, he worked on the airfield he used to work in the raf during the war and he's bringing up these spare ribs to his mouth um and he's got all the grease is dripping down his arms and you can just see the whites of his eyes just looking over straight into the camera and it was and all those elements told a story and it was my granddad in an absolute nutshell and i was like that's what you should be taking i don't want to see I don't. They, I remember the one was like, "Oh, this is a picture of your nana paddling in the sea, and you can't see her. She's a dot on the landscape because they're so far away." Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing that photo of my granddad, and I've still got it to this day. And I'm like, "That's what you should be taking on holiday." So I made sure that when you know that I got the camera on holiday and started taking pictures like that, and uh, and then wanted to do it at school, um, and I was the only student in my year who wanted to do photography. And they tried, they tried to stop me because it wasn't in the financial interest of the school for me to do mm -hmm. it. Um, and my, uh, it was my dad went and had a meeting with the headmaster that I thought was going to go terribly because my headmaster was this small Scottish man who had a fiery temper. Um, and my dad just stormed into his office and he was in there for 30 seconds. And he came out of that office and he said, you're doing photography next year. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and, but, but the, the, but I was on my own because the art teacher wouldn't teach me because he, we had a dark room, but he said, you got to go and teach that yourself because I haven't got time because I've got a class for, full of 20 students there who are painting and need my help. And he, and it helped. you know, he obviously couldn't keep coming in and out of the dark room because if you're processing, you can't just open the door. So for two years, I taught it. I taught myself. And at that point, I mean, there was no internet. Nope. So it's not like you could find information or watch videos or, or connect with others uh, locally or around the world with the, <laughs> the same interest. Nope. Uh, so, dude, yeah, I, I mean, one, clearly it must have captured you enough to, to go at it uh, in isolation. Uh, but also just as you, as you describe that one photograph, the level of detail and the clarity in 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 you articulating what what you remember of it uh i yeah i can see that it, it clearly meant something to you I'm, I'm curious is that is that photograph public or is that a private keepsake of yours oh no it's a private keepsake definitely um it's uh, yeah i mean yeah it's nothing i've really sort of i, I talk i like talking about it because exactly what you said there it does um you build a picture up in your mind of what it might look like and I, right, like, even, and I like that. <laughs> totally, totally. And because even, I guess, the, with my, uh, through the lens of, of branding and, and building businesses, I mean, like, that's the story right there. That one photograph could be representative of who you are as an artist. Like, that story alone would sell me to want to hire you <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, and, it, and it is the moment i go back to like i said i i we we used to and we don't do it now like my kids my kids look at they don't even look at the photos on my phone anymore do you know what they do they bring up like messenger the, the photo the photography thing in messenger and they put a cat on their head or they put make themselves look like a princess or they you know those little filters 
Uh, I used the cat on the head last night. <laughs> so they just, they don't even look at photos of, of stuff that we've done. They just want to look at how their face changes on Snapchat or wherever it is. So, but when I was younger, it was, we had, we had album after album after album. And mm. I just remember I was always looking through them and love, love looking back at photos and the hard copies of them. And they are the things, they still are the things that, that you would go to, to save from your house after, once your family's safe. You would, you would, you would, you would go after the photos. I mean, I've, I've, my, our most precious thing in this house, I think, is a photograph of my, my wife and I on our wedding day. It was the first thing we got printed up from it, and we look at it every day. It's on our wall, and it has that much value. Are are prints available for sale, James? <laughs> what of my, what of my wedding day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm joking. Um, so I'm curious, like at that point, was was it tunnel vision that this is this is what I'm going to do? Uh, well, even at that point, it was like it was okay. This was the only thing I enjoyed at school. Really enjoyed, and and it was like the two hours every week that I got to put a sign on the door that said teachers can't come into this room. So mm -hmm. I had a book that I learned from and an, and and an uncle that not an uncle it's a friend of my dad's who uh, who used to teach me on sort of wednesday evenings he took me for sort of like a couple of couple of wednesday evenings and just showed me the processing of film and uh, prints because he ran a local camera club so i learned the basics from that but then the rest of it was all me the rest of it was all you, you just got to go out and find stuff to shoot and i just knew at the end of those two years i, I had to have a project ready to present um, that, that had to be at a level that no one had helped, that no one had guided me. I didn't know what the level was to pass. Mm -hmm. I was just, you know, just here's, you know, pick a subject and produce some art on that subject. And I don't really see myself particularly as much of a, of a creative artist, if that makes sense. I, I struggle. My wife doesn't. My wife can create something from nothing. She went to art school and she has the ability to sit in front of a blank piece of paper and make something appear and make it brilliant. And I need something to bounce off. I can't sit in front of nothing and create something. I need a portrait subject or an interesting piece of light or, you know, something like that. Um, I need some inspiration, if that makes sense. Uh, so do you, you, don't, you don't have the vision first and then go find a way to create that through a photograph? Occasionally, but most of my visions are drawn for inspirations from elsewhere. So I'll see something and I'll think, oh, I'd like to do something not not i don't never say that i want to do that but oh that's given me an idea to look at this in a different way and do it like that sure um, i you know i need that i can't I, i'm not a blank paper guy i, I really struggle i'd struggle that is the equivalent of sort of writer's block if you like but as mm -hmm. soon as i've got people to work with i mean that's and that's the beauty of working with the wrestling industry if we can go back into that is the majority of the wrestlers in the industry are probably 20s early 30s Mm -hmm. that's that's the age when you have creative ideas where you're not afraid to fail and you're not afraid to to try things that might not work and i get to surround myself with them and their ideas so they see the quality of the photography that we're putting out and and they come to me with, oh I've, I've had this idea for this what do you think about this then i can tinker with that and i can i can twist that around and i can make that work um in 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 and then, and then it becomes sort of like a, a process where we've both inputted and come up with something that, that's better than either of our visions so do you prefer the collaboration yeah definitely I, with the right person absolutely 100 sure. so i mean a really simple example and i know this is stupidly basic but like we had a young uh female wrestler who's about to go off with shimmer and uh, stardom and she mm -hmm. was in japan called zoe lucas and she called me up and said i need some new promo pictures before i go on tour um 
I'm going to bring a cupcake to the session because she that's what she, she comes to the room with a little cupcake and gives it to a fan. I saw that on Instagram in the past day. Right. Okay. So I just I said no, don't do that. I'll contact a person that I know through our portrait business who makes cakes. We'll make a yep. giant pink cupcake. We'll put your name on it and we'll do a cake smash just like we do with our one year old kids. And we'll, mm -hmm. and we'll, you know, we'll smash your face into the cake, and we'll put it on Instagram Live, and we'll cover you in it, and and make it all really messy, and pull loads of different funny expressions, and give you something different. And that is so much more marketable than just having her come to the studio, stand in front of the camera, holding a little cupcake. Because and it's really not that much different you're doing, but like all you really need to do is just a bit more than everyone else to stand out. Absolutely. That's all it is. And, and for the price of, you know, whatever that cake was to make, it wasn't that much, you know, and we, and we split the fee between us because I didn't want her to put the cost of it. Cause it was my idea, if that makes sense, you know, and I knew that I'd get some creative, you know, bounce back from it anyway. It just, it just makes so much more sense. And it means to, to, to an outside promoter who's looking to book her, it tells that story so much better and makes it look like she invests in her character and therefore invests in herself and, and, and values herself more and therefore the promoter values them more, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm curious because kind of where, where your current story ends is, uh, you know, you're this photographer that, that a company like ring of honor is willing to fly over from the UK Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you take on those extra expenses, uh, to make sure that you are the guy to document our, our biggest events. Um, so when did wrestling come into your life? Wrestling was 2014 and that started because as, wait, as a fan, no, I'm talking about as a fan, oh, as a fan. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I loved it in the really early nineties, but I couldn't get it because I wasn't, um, I didn't have Sky, and Sky TV over here was the only carrier for the WWE. So yep. you'd, you'd occasionally catch like late night WCW around 1991, 1992, but you know, I wasn't really old enough to be hanging around, you know, waking up at midnight to watch it. Mm. I do have super early memories of the late 80s and like the world of sport era with people like William Regal, a really young William Regal, and Robbie Brookside, and Rollable Rocco, and, you know, Klondike Kate, and all these all these wonderful people who I've since met, you know, in the scene. Um, mm -hmm. So I have super early memories of that. But then I kind of drifted out of it in the mid-90s, um, purely, you know, for, from lack of, uh, lack of exposure, I suppose. And then I remember coming home from a nightclub in 1997, and I was, it was about two in the morning, and I switched on our cable box at the time, which was carrying Sky Sports. And I watched Triple H versus Mankind in The King of the Ring. Mm -hmm. And I was mesmerized by Mick Foley and the, the neck injury that I thought he genuinely had in the match. And the fact that they kept attacking his neck. And the sell job he did on that neck at the end of the, the, the pay-per-view, which I stayed up for, I was like, and they said, oh, join us Monday night to find out what happens next. And I'm like, well, I've got to find out whether he's actually hurt or not. I hope to. Because I thought he was hurt. And then I watched it on Monday. And then the story arcs start coming in and you see characters like The Rock and characters like, you know, Stone Cold. And you're like, okay, I'm hooked. I've got to see what happens yeah. next week now. And then I'm watching every pay-per-view, you know, and I'm recording them. And I remember getting one, I remember staying in Cambridge and like getting my, getting my mum to record one of the pay-per-views and then mail it to me on, on wow. tape so I can watch it. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, it, it, it's cool that you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Mick Foley. Uh, so for those listening at, at that point, uh, you know, he was either wrestling under the name mankind or, or cactus Jack yeah. most likely. Uh, but 
I so I I've been a wrestling fan really since I can remember maybe four or five years old. This is like maybe like 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was always a, a WWE or WWF fan. Um, and I, I think a lot of that just being more in the Northeast of the United States. Uh, but every now and then I would watch a bit of WCW and early nineties. Uh, I, I remember Cactus Jack or Mick Foley and he was the one who stood out and yeah. kind of hooked me into, into WCW, uh, because he felt real to me. Mm-hmm. You know, where a lot of, uh, uh, especially in the, in the, in the 90s, uh, especially in the WWF, a lot of it did feel more uh, like a, a, a storybook or cartoon kind of come to life with over-the-top characters. But it was, it was the realism, which, which I think uh, Ring of Honor often achieves, and we talked earlier, ECW achieved. It was the realism of someone like uh, a McFoley Cactus Jack that, uh, it, yeah, it made me question, like, what what is this that I'm watching? I'm not quite sure, but I'm intrigued. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's blurring those lines, and, it, and it's still true even in 2018 that I think the best wrestling happens in that in that in that grey area where you don't really know, okay, what happened there, or or are they really hurt, or you know, how bad is that, you know, kind of thing. I think the the, the genius of McFoley was that he had those sort of three main characters, so that when one got stale, he could just change character and just do the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he 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 was he was an everyman as well, you know he wasn't he wasn't an unachievable size or shape or height, you know he was he was he was he was he was, he was all of us, rest, you know achieve, living out our dreams in the ring if that makes sense, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that more recently, at least in in a WWE with someone like a Daniel Bryan, uh, where uh, you can see yourself in their story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. And and I think that, that no one has garnered sympathy from an audience quite like Mick Foley. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so uh, I'm curious as we kind of start to like fill in the gaps, James. So when I, when I asked uh, prior to us doing this podcast and, and me kind of uh, putting it out in the, in the Facebook group that you would be doing it, uh, you said that you were working uh in like an insurance claims type of role. But then when we chatted yesterday, I realized you were still doing photography in that role. I'm correct in that? Uh, no, 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 that was, no, that was, uh, that was later on. The, the insurance claim company was, was way before, was before, was the last job I had before I decided to make the jump into photography. The, okay. one of the first photography jobs I took when I was self-employed was photographing cars that had been involved in crashes. God, it's a case of I definitely don't want to do that within photography, but I definitely have to make money. So, sure. so you go out and when it's raining, you know, you get in your car and for $15, you drive half an hour down the road to photograph a smashed up vehicle and then you drive home and email them over. Mm. Uh, but you have to do that because you got a, a kid that needs nappies and a, and a wife that needs a roof over her head and, and the heating on, you know, so you have to, you know, you have to, you have to do those things to get to where you want to be. So for context, what, uh, how old were you at that point when you were starting to kind of monetize your photography, but not quite in, in the way that made you feel most alive? 
so yeah, I mean, that was, I went self-employed in 2010. So I got my first photography job in 2003 when I was like a trainee photographer within a high street studio. Mm -hmm. So I'd basically come in at the bottom rung of the ladder and do all of the, all of the, you know, the cleaning, the emptying the bins, the, you know, the greeting of the customers, the making of the cups of tea, the watching the sessions and all that kind of stuff. And then got kind of thrown at the deep end because they had so few photographers because they had like a mass exodus before I got there. So I thought I'd stormed the interview and done brilliantly and wowed them with my small portfolio of work. Um, but what the reality was, they were just desperate and they saw that I'd driven sort of 60, 70 miles to go to the job interview and was willing to, to move as well, to be closer to the studio. And they said, yeah, we'll have him he looks desperate enough um, mm. and you know and then you you work your way up there so so but what that taught me the the job there was like i i learned photography second i learned people skills first so mm. my camera was sellotaped on the various function buttons so i couldn't move them so i wasn't allowed any creativity in camera i was told not to move the lights i was told where to stand with my camera and i was told if i've got a problem come downstairs someone will fix it so for every, you know, for five days a week, I would shoot between nine and 12 sessions a day, nine and 12 different families, nine and 12 different ages of kids and babies and grandparents and God knows what. And every hour it was another one. Um, and you just learn how to talk to people and learn how to, you know, talk to your customers and talk to the people who've got the buying influences and how to check your ego at the door when you're rolling on the floor trying to make kids laugh or playing peekaboo or having a baby throw up on you or be sick on you or all those things you know and that's super important to everything i do uh, as a social photographer you can get away if you're a corporate photographer and you're photographing products or still life or you know artistic landscapes you can get away with with not having those skills but for me it's utterly vital so and and now you've you've also kind of built uh, another niche outside of pro wrestling, but specifically working with with young kids. Is that right? That's right. So yeah, basically, um, our studio here in Portsmouth shoots sort of four to five days a week, doing uh, what we call bump to babies, where we shoot maternity images of, of pregnant ladies and then their newborn babies when they arrive. When did that begin? So that began in two thousand and ten when I left my previous employer. Okay, yeah, so. so I have a bunch of questions and I want to kind of get to one here because I think it's a natural like time to do that. Uh, so for those listening, uh, facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. Uh, it's a private group. Uh, we're over 1600 members. And, uh, part of what we do there is we open it up to the group to, uh, have a say in what they're interested in with our guests. So one of our good friends, uh, Ryan S. Denti, uh, he was curious, uh, like one, what inspired you to kind of make that jump mm -hmm. where you're, you're doing something a bit more entrepreneurial on your terms, but you really don't have, uh, the, the comfort or the safety, uh, or predictability of what you may have had before. Mm. Um, so what motivated you there? Um, and at that point, like, did you feel you, you were an accomplished photographer? Yeah. Um, I, I, okay, I'll take the second part first. I, I, I did feel I was an accomplished photographer when I left the studio and quickly realized how much more I needed to learn. Because mm -hmm. I'd trained for six years how to shoot one way and one style. So I, I trained myself to shoot in a white box and to make families have fun, which still predominantly makes me money. But within months of leaving that job and going self-employed, I had to learn how to 
work in a much smaller space with fewer lights. And then when I wasn't getting customers in, because I had no customer database to attack, I had to work out how to shoot on site, how to shoot on location, how to shoot dance shows, how to shoot products, um, how to do all sorts of things. One of the things I did um, was I followed our local MP around, um, a member of parliament during the 2010 sort of national election, um, mm. because Portsmouth's Portsmouth follows the national trend. So I don't know whether you have an equivalent state in America that goes Republican or Democrat, depending on which president gets elected. Um, so like, like a swing state? Yeah, like a swing state, yeah. Yeah, so there's a handful of those that really decide elections in the, in the country. Yeah, I wouldn't say Portsmouth decides the election, but it definitely follows the trend. So if, if, if we have a conservative leader, Portsmouth will be conservative. And then when we have the Labour Prime Minister, Portsmouth will have gone Labour. They just follow the national trend. Mm -hmm. So that means that every day during that sort of three, four week election, there was rumours that big names, big politicians were going to come down and do campaigning in Portsmouth. And you don't realise until you're around these people how much those decisions just made on the day you assume a political campaign over those four weeks is planned out and like they know exactly where everyone's going to be but there's so many panicked phone calls of like david cameron's going to be down here this day or george osman's going to be down there this day i'm just sorry i'm just throwing out english uh, british politicians <laughs> from, from six years ago um but so uh, but i got into places following our mp around on that campaign trail that i should never have got into i got into the royal naval um the heart of the royal navy uh, base which is all security protected you can't get into it without you know clearance but we went in there because the shadow defense secretary at the time had a meeting with the head of the company that builds the aircraft carriers for the royal navy to secure what would happen in the event that he won the election and i turned up in jeans and trainers and a t-shirt seriously because i didn't know where we were going they just said i'll oh, just meet us here we, we don't know what's happening today someone's coming down but we're just following them so I turned up and I'm in this room. Honestly, I'm, we're taken through security, through clearance, up a lift, through a stairwell. And then we're into this room with like this, this oak polished table that must have been 20 foot, 25 foot long with suits all around it. And they had this two and a half minute meeting where he just, you know, the, the MP just promised what was going to happen and they shook hands on it and i just brought my camera up and just took you know photograph that moment <laughs> in the corner <laughs> that's incredible so so one did you feel confident in that experience and and two does having a camera give you a sense of like being invincible I yeah well that's a good question I didn't feel confident at all I was I was totally out of place I was a fish out of water but so but I but I followed that advice I shut up you know, you just shut up and you just follow and you just, and no one stopped me, you know, but, but because I was part of the team, everyone was like, oh no, he's all right. He's with us. Cause I'd built up their trust over the first week of the campaign. And then I'm asking, you know, I'm asking them to do, you know, setting them up for shots and things, which, you know, eventually. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, um, what's the second part? Sorry. I've lost my train so, of thought. So, I, I mean, you've clearly like this story, uh, I think demonstrates that you had in, intense, experience as a photographer that I'd assume would, would have helped giving you confidence and, and feel competent. Uh, but then really the, the heart of the question is switching over to, to more of an entrepreneurial path with your photography. Yeah. Um, wh where did that come from the, the motivation or even the audacity to do that? Right. Well, that, that comes, that comes from way back. So that comes from 
about 2004, no, 2005, March 2005. And I was not in a healthy place physically. And I was on a hospital bed watching DVDs all day. And it was an old ECW DVD. The, uh, it's an old wrestling one. Of course um, it was, James. <laughs> of course it was. But it, it's the one that has the, the line, the, the little monologue from Paul Heyman at the end of it about success and failure. And to cut a long story short, he just says, you can't achieve success if you fear failure. And I must have watched that monologue that night 25 times. I would just reround that DVD back to that specific point and just watch that minute worth of footage back and back and back and back. And I realized that my whole life up until that point, I feared failure without knowing it because I made, mm. I made subconscious decisions that kept me in a safe zone, which is why I ended up working for an insurance company on the worst, lowest paid job they could offer me because I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe that I could achieve more. I didn't, but I never believed that I could be a photographer after my experience at school and you know, I just about scraped that pass when I was teaching myself, but I was told exclusively, exclusively by the school not to do it in further education. So I believed them and I mm -hmm. failed at everything out all the other choices I made in further education failed them all. So I left that job. So, so I left school, sorry, and got a job in a supermarket, then got a job in a bar and then ended up in that insurance company. You know, and like I literally, I mean, I think I got I got the photography job because because I was like, I was like, I had a terrible morning in in this insurance company, and took a call that left me in pieces because the person had basically abused me over the phone for the best part of twenty five minutes and made it feel mm. like it was a personal attack, which I should know, you know, I wasn't mature enough to know the difference, but I was like, I excused myself from my desk. I looked up at the clock because I thought it will nearly be lunchtime. It will nearly be one o'clock. And I looked up at that clock and it said 20 minutes past nine. I was, hmm. I was four hours away from lunchtime and I thought I'd been there all morning. So I took, wow. myself, I took myself away and just had a little cry on a stairwell somewhere <laughs> and just um, made the decision that I may as well fail at something I really enjoy than fail at this, which I hate because I was failing at it. I wasn't even, any, I wasn't even any good at that job. And then they made me, and then they made me redundant from that job. So they, then the company told me that I wasn't valuable enough to do the worst job I could imagine working on a complaints line for an insurance company, an insurance company that I started on my first day, I was told every customer that calls us is a fraudulent customer. And it's up to them to prove otherwise. That was my training. That sucks. Yeah, you know. So, so that's, that's that was that. So that was that point. And 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 then you know, then I get the job in photography, and I'm I'm enjoying it, and I'm doing it well. And then I have a have a you know a turn of health uh, and have a health issue, and then have to and then I, and then I see this Heyman clip, and mm -hmm. I, I just realised that I, I was I was fearing failure, and 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 from that moment when I got better, I. I, I, I decided, yeah, no, at some point, and, it, and I have to pick the right time, but at some point I'm going to work for myself. And, 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 you know, eventually the right time came. James, no pressure. Are you willing to, to let our listeners know what that, that turn of, that bad turn of health oh, was? Absolutely. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, no, I was, I was diagnosed in 2004, a week after I completed the New York city marathon, uh, with stage two testicular cancer, uh, which required an operation. And then chemotherapy for three months 
and then a further operation because it spread to my lymph node. So I had an abdomen operation. Um, wow. But I was told, like, that is, I was told day one, there's two things the doctor said to me that were really grounding. One of them was, he said, I can't guarantee we're going to get you through this. No, I've never been to a doctor that said I wasn't going to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, for everything you've been, you've been to, you know, for like flu or measles when you're a kid or whatever it is, they always tell you you're going to get better. But he said, I can't guarantee that. But he said to me, if you're going to get cancer and the chances are you are at some point in your life, get the one you've got and get it in your mid twenties. So you're mm-hmm. in a good place. And, you know, I didn't fight it. The doctors did. But ultimately, sure. you know, ultimately, God bless the NHS in this country. You know, they got me through it and, you know, the rest is history. So I'd imagine like that has to just completely change your sense of urgency in, in life. It, it, it makes you realize that you get one shot. And I realized through, because I was, you know, when you're taking your key, I was taking chemo drugs that required me to stay in overnight for like days on end. So you have a lot of thinking time and you meet people. I remember meeting someone on that ward who she was 19 and was given weeks and was so bubbly and lovely and happy Mm. because she, and it's what I've since learned about hospices for children. Um, because I visited one with a view to doing a project, which I may revisit. And I was expecting it to be this real clinical, quiet sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And this children's hospice was just, it was colorful and it was noisy and there was laughter and it was fun. And I asked someone why, and they said, it's because we want these children to have the best of what little they have left, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, you know, you just meet those people and you're just like, Jesus, I've got, I've not got it bad here. You know, I really don't. And so, so when, when you come out the other side of it, you, you realize, yeah, I've got one shot. And I, I remember being, like I say, I remember being ill and I remember taking my chemotherapy drugs, 20, whatever I was, 25 at the time. And just thinking, if I, if, if the worst happens, like, this sounds really terrible to say now, but if the worst happens, like for a short period of time, some people are going to be super sad okay there's going to be a really small number of people who are going to be really sad for a long time but ultimately i've not done anything that would make any imprint any you know there wouldn't be any footprint you know unleft by me not getting through this because i haven't achieved anything i haven't Mm -hmm. met anyone i wasn't in a relationship i didn't have kids i didn't have a house you know i hadn't made any hadn't made any waves in in my photography and my business creatively there wasn't sure as hell wasn't going to be an insurance company that was going to miss me so the, the the whole shawshank redemption line you get busy living or you get busy dying and i was mm-hmm. ready to get busy living so i mean this, this is the appropriate time to ask but but i mean even it's almost like let's save this one for the end but i'm going to ask i'm going to ask it now okay. uh, because we're here uh what would you like your legacy to be? Um, uh, uh, I would like, um, uh, oh Jesus. Um, I can't think of an answer that doesn't sound hugely egotistical. Wonderful. Um, give it to us. So uh, Dude, I, like, seriously, like, like 
fuck that judgment. Give us your truth. Like, what, what are you, what, what's important that when you aren't here, that whether, whether it's your children, uh, or, or friends or the many fans around the world of your work, mm. like what, what do you want that legacy to be? So this is a legacy creatively, right? Or as a human being. Okay. Well, no, that, that stops and ends with my kids. Sure. Completely. I've got two children and that completely, they will outgrow everything I've ever done. And, mm -hmm. that, and, that, and, and, if I, and if they do that, then that's a testament to what me and my wife have done. You know, and they're everything. But like, I think creatively, the thing that gets me most, and it's something we alluded to earlier when we were speaking you know, privately, I got an email from someone who told me they started photography because they saw my work. You know, just picked up a camera because they saw my work. And that's that you don't know where that could lead. And, and I never dreamt I could have anyone, I could influence anyone like that. Never. At any point during my career, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to take up what I do because you've seen what I do. From nothing, from like, like this is a person who had no interest in photography before. You know, I think that's amazing. It's me. powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I mean, and, and it's because uh, whether it was uh, in part due to, to your cancer, in part due to the inspiration from a Paul Heyman promo, um, and for those listening who know nothing about pro wrestling, uh, Paul Heyman, he still works in WWE, but he was, uh, he was ECW, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and and whatever it was, you were able to say yes to what made you feel alive with, with this photography and doing it in a way that, that felt good to you. And I'd, I'd probably argue for most people, they don't, they don't allow themselves that luxury in the one life they have. Uh, so in many ways you're, you're a leading example. You're an inspiration to others. That's very kind. I think what a gift, you know? Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think so many people hold themselves back or don't believe that they're, you know, don't believe they. Uh, what was that I said to my friend the other day? And, and it was something I heard. Uh, we earn in life. Yeah, we earn in life what we, how much, however much we value, however much we think we value ourselves. So that is, uh, however much we think we're worth is how much we earn. I mean, it's all a reflection of, of the relationship we have internally. Yes, yes, 100%. 100%. And uh, for, for the longest period of time, I didn't think I was worth enough. You know, and, and, and you know, it's, it, that's a learning process. I think, I think, you know, you can't, it's difficult because you don't want to just like, it's difficult because you don't want to just be one of these people that sort of says, you need to go out there and follow your dreams and chase your dreams because, uh, the, you know, the long and the short of the story is this, that I am chasing my dreams and I'm doing them now, you know, which is really cool. But ultimately mm -hmm. that comes from dedication and hard work a mm -hmm. lot of dedication and hard work. And I'm not, and I don't want to belittle the jobs that I had before I became a full-time photographer because there are things I learned when I was collecting trolleys for a supermarket or stacking shelves in uh, at midnight for that same supermarket or uh, pulling pints at a bar or cooking breakfasts at three in the morning for taxi drivers or going door to door asking for charity collections. There's things I learned down the line that I would still use to this day. And, you know, particularly in photography, you have to, I had to put the hard miles in. I had to, and I had to learn and be willing to be open to criticism. 
from a, like in this industry so much so because I get you get criticised by your you know your mentor will criticize you or your trainer will criticize you and then you're trying to sell images to your families and your families will criticize your work to your face unknowing uh, unknowingly and you know not not in a nasty way uh, but uh, you, and you can't get protective and you know you, you can't get offended by that you just have to take it on the chin and take what you need to from it and move forward you know there's a lot you need a lot of resiliency i think mm -hmm. You know? yeah, especially when you're really mixing art with commerce. Yeah, art with the, the commercial value to, to make money. And that, like I say, that, that you allude to that, that, that a lot of people struggle with that point. It's like, what am I worth? Why should I be charging for this? You know, mm -hmm. and, and we still struggle with this. We struggle with it today, with our customers today, you know, but it's not like we're not sitting at a desk crying, asking, wondering, wondering why people aren't spending. We go, okay, that's another one. Can't, can't folk, you know, can't dwell on that. We'll take what we sure. need to to learn from it and, you know, try and make, make sure that the next customer, you know, that doesn't do that. Um, it still happens to us. You know, it's not well, it's I'm, perfect. For me, uh, and my experience, uh, I'm a bit unique in that my service with the Beatwell uh, company, it's, it's not like I can see what others, what the market value is for the type of experience that I offer as a service. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was, it's still uh, an ongoing process of what do I charge? What is this service worth? What am I worth providing the service? Yeah. Um, and it was, it, it, it was, and, and at times still is scary to say, this is what I'm worth. And, and over the years, I've kind of, I've continued to increase the rate. Uh, and then, you know, for a period of time, it's kind of like, well, this is my baseline. And if if I'm not going to feel any sort of resentment in any process of the work, then that feels good to me. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very personalized, individualized uh, process as an artist to determine your value and then to ask for it. Yeah. And there's, and also there's getting into a business, I suppose there are, you have to pick your hills and there are, Areas where you can, I believe, work for nothing, and it's absolutely beneficial. So, if I, if I, for, for an example, if we go back to that election campaign that I covered, I covered it for four weeks, you know, on and off the every other day, um, because I had no other work. So, if I wasn't doing that, I'd have just been sat at home twiddling my thumbs, wondering why my diary isn't full. So, I offered my services for free. At the end of the campaign, they offered me money to buy all of the pictures from because the MP who was going for that seat in our constituency won. So, they wanted, mm -hmm. they saw the value of my work and they're like, Do you know what, chuck him a few quid because he's been around. You know, it's more of a pity payment, I think, but also because they wanted a record of her win, you know, which is a really, really cool keepsake. So, sold them the digital files to the guy. That guy then came back to me two months later and said, oh, I've got a wedding inquiry for you because someone on the council's getting wedding, uh, getting married, sorry. Um, so I photographed like a wedding from that. I photographed a girl band from that because the person that was getting married managed a girl band and the girl band came into our studio and had their portraits taken. There's hundreds of things that I can, that I can, it's like a spider's web where, but unless you put yourself out there and sometimes you have to put yourself out there for free in the beginning to get where you want to go. Yeah. yeah, I mean, many people listening to, to this know that with, with the Beatwell work, uh, essentially for the first two years, uh, I did it for free. But sure. to your point, and this is something that we, we, we touch on with some regularity, uh, you understood that there's 
there's more potential value than just money. Uh, you know, it was either you, you got the, the pity payment at, at the end, in the back end, uh, but you built a network and you were building a reputation and you're building a portfolio and experience, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And also, I think as much as it was a pity payment, uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a negotiation towards a price. So if I'd have been the kind of creative that when they said, oh, can we have those images? That, and that's pretty much how this conversation came about. I said, oh, can you give us those images? And I said, well, can, we need to work out a price kind of thing. But if I'd have been one of those creators who said, yeah, have the images, they wouldn't have referred me to a wedding because I wouldn't have come across as a professional because no money would have transactioned. Yep. So they'd have gone, oh, I do know a photographer, but I'm not sure he's a professional. We'll go and find a professional who's going to charge us money. And all of a sudden you've lost that lead. You know, I, I don't know if I've shared this story uh uh, through this through this podcast, but uh, I, I was once at a training with with fellow drum circle facilitators, and and I'll never forget the story shared uh, by one of the guys there. And he was offered uh, a pretty significant gig, I think maybe in in the corporate space, and maybe he quoted them at uh, I'm just making numbers up now, but maybe he quoted them at five hundred dollars for the service, mm -hmm. and he got a response. Uh, I don't think immediately, but, but probably within a week or two. And, and they basically said, we were on board with you, with, with you as a person, with you as a service, we were on board and ready to hire you until we got the price. If you quoted us at $1,500, we would have said yes. And, and it was him undervaluing himself that he, he, he communicated that he wasn't worth that much, at least what, what they were looking for. I have the exact. May I? May I? May I? Sorry. May I trade you off with a story, please? A really recent one, okay? And it involves. There's a crossover with Ring of Honor. Um, I was contacted by um, a company called Top Man over here, um, which is like an equivalent, I suppose, of like a Hot Topic out there. It's like it's like a a, a, a clothing store for like the early twenty somethings, I suppose. Yep. Fashion outlet, yep, right? Familiar. So they contacted me saying, oh, we're thinking of doing a shoot with a wrestler in a suit. And they were really vague about it. They said, oh, we've booked the guy, but, you know, whatever. And I'm like, oh. That... And then Marty Skull, who wrestles for Ring of Honor, contacted me like an hour later and said, oh, Top Man have contacted me about doing a shoot. And I'm like, oh, okay, like a video shoot. Mm -hmm. The reason why Top Man got in contact is because they'd seen the video shoot that I put together for Marty for Ring of Honor and were so impressed by it that they wanted to get hold of the company that shot it. And they thought it was a production company and not me with my camera and my light. <laughs> so when they contacted me, they assumed they were getting through to a huge production company and I was going to give them a massive quote. And I didn't. And then when Marty eventually, because they, they were super hot on me doing it. And then they eventually all got booked out of my hands. And Marty was, you know, said, oh, I was taken up to London and we were taken to this massive studio with a team of people. And I was like, ah. Oh. And they produced, a, you know, they produced a video that was better than something I, I could have produced, but not that much better. And, sure. But, but, the, but of course they're not going to book me because they're corporate. They're not going to go for the guy, <laughs> you know, it's like the, like the second quote, you know, the second thing of The Wizard of Oz, I suppose, once you pull back the curtain, it's just like, oh no, the perception is reality, I suppose. And I think a, a big lesson in that for, for creatives that, you know, are for hire is, do a bit of homework or at least feel feel out the client as much as you can yeah. to get a sense of who they are what they're looking for uh not only in in the end result but in in a uh in who they're hiring mm -hmm. uh or, and, and to your to use your word the perception of of what they're hiring yeah absolutely yeah absolutely 
Um, so, so while we're like kind of, uh, I know, I know this all started talking about the legacy of, of you as an artist. Uh, I want to dig into another question, uh, by uh, a gentleman who lives over in the UK as well, and will likely be editing, uh, this audio, uh, that we're creating in this moment, Joe Hamilton. Uh, so he was curious, uh, was finding your photographic or artistic style an easy process for you? Uh, how do you navigate it and eventually decide on what you wanted to produce? Uh, or is it just a big process of trial and error for you? It's a, it's a process. Of, it's a, a process. It's a process. There we go. Back to the English accent. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I tell you, I overdo the English accent. I, I said this yesterday, didn't I? I overdo the English accent when I'm talking to Americans. I go very British. Um, no, it, it's a case of like evolving, I suppose, over time. And like different projects have led to different things. Um, when I first, like, I'll go back to it. When I first learned, I was just making people jump around in front of the camera, have fun and making things look as lights and white backgrounds and contrasty and full of color and all that kind of stuff when i went self-employed i moved completely away from that because i didn't want to be associated with that brand or that style i wanted to create my own style so my style for a for a whole new project of portraits went black and white on a black background and then that transitioned into portrait of a wrestler um i think the black and white style is more timeless and my my unique selling point, I think, of my images is that I want them to look as good in 50 years' time as they do today. And you can't do that when you're photographing trends in photography. So there was a trend recent, I'd say, maybe four or five years ago that was HDR, where everything was super high contrasty and detailed and all the shadows were sort of like lifted and all the highlights were compressed down so it gave this really sort of surreal look to pictures and it's completely dated go back further it was taking color out of pictures so you'd have all the color out of pictures apart from blue so people's jeans would still be blue like the george michael video faith sure you know their eyes would be blue but everything else would be black and white and you know there's there's a there's a rule in like photoshop i think is like just because you can doesn't mean you should um so i'm trying to i'm always trying to create images that you know that look good and will look good for a long time that's what i want i don't want things that look trendy or you know snazzy or you know on trend i suppose so you don't rely on instagram filters i don't, I don't think i've ever used an instagram filter i think i, I don't i don't think i have you uh, feel free to correct me but i think I, I i process everything in photoshop and then just literally slap it onto instagram as as i as i want it to be seen sure you know yeah, so I don't, yeah, no, definitely not. Um, so, so you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, at, at your, your style clearly has evolved, but also the, the, the subject has evolved. So uh, whether you're doing it with, with children and families uh, or for wrestling. So I want to bounce back to another question that, that Ryan Astenti had. Uh, how did you get into wrestling? Uh, because it's a very... Uh, protective fraternal uh community slash business slash culture um that it, it sometimes can be hard to penetrate so how what was your way in oh thanks ryan that's a cool question um the 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 the, the short answer is with great difficulty I, I i decided that i wanted to do a project for the highest qualification you can get in the uk for a photographer which is a thing called a fellowship you essentially have to produce 20 really big, large printed images to present in front of five judges um, who will either just tell you yes or no. 
that's basically it's real old school you go into like this room and there's these old judges in there and they give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down based on the, the work you've just presented in front of them and i knew that the project couldn't just be my best work that i'd shot over the last 10 years it had to be on a specific project and being a wrestling fan i knew i could tap into that and i think i used to see posters for wrestling events around my town and just think that the quality of the photography on them was just dreadful compared to the quality of the show it just wasn't a reflection on the show quality so i started off the portrait of a wrestler project with the goal of two goals i wanted to have a picture on a poster that's all i wanted and mm. i wanted to make friends with enough wrestlers so that i could invite some of them round to watch wrestlemania on my sofa when it came round, you know, in however long that took. So I just started to email as many wrestlers as possible. And I sent out maybe 40, 50 emails in the first two and a half months and got no responses. And since then, I've realized why. And it's because they get so many emails asking, will you be on my podcast? Can I photograph you? Blah, 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 blah. And they just don't respond to them because they're not bookings and they're just, you know, people looking for freebies and they don't have time. So I was getting frustrated and I couldn't get into the circle. I couldn't get into the bubble. And then I saw a local wrestler in my newspaper who'd recently recovered from a quite an acute stomach condition. And it was just his story about how he's returning to the ring on Saturday. So I rang up the reporter of that piece and I said, my name's James, I'm a local photographer. I'd love to shoot this guy. I don't want his number. Can you give him mine and tell him to give me a call? Uh, and within five minutes, he called me back. And he doesn't drive, so I had to go and pick him up. And his name's uh, the Fearless Flatliner. And he's a huge guy, like six foot and change. And like he's got piercings all over his ears and his eyes and a bleached beard and a bald head. And he works as a, as a doorman for nightclubs. And just the most gruff character you've met and the most wonderful, honest human being. He's just brilliant. And, and like he... He had a shoot with me, introduced me to the promoter of the local promotion, which I didn't realize two things. The promotion training school was, it's a mile away from my house. And the promoter for that training school lives half a mile away from my house. So all this, wow. time, all this time I'm sending emails to people all around the country going, I'll travel to you, I'll pay for your train fare, I'll do whatever, just come to me. I literally had the local promoter and the local head of the training school half a mile away from me. So he came to have his shoot and he said, this has been brilliant. These photos are great. And once again, those first two shoots were free and they got the mm -hmm. images for free. Because, because Andy Simmons, Andy Boy Simmons, who's a veteran of the UK scene, who was the second guy I shot and the head of the training school, he said, I love that. That was brilliant. I'm going to send all my guys down to you. And then all of a sudden, his trainees are coming down with money to have their pictures taken by me. And then I'm getting invited to shows. And then I'm getting introduced to Marty Skull because Marty at the time was living with Andy. So Marty, who was a guy on TV that I was watching on wrestling while I'm trying to get wrestlers to come to my project, is living half a mile down the road with a shoulder injury, thinking up this new character, the villain, and mm. bouncing ideas off of me about, do you think this would work? How do you think I should dress? Do you think I should do with the fur coat? Do you think it needs to be white? I think the brown one looks good. And we're literally bouncing those ideas off in our first session. You know, and then he's recommending me to guys in London and then the guys from London are coming down to see me and they're sending their trainees down to see me and then pro, you know, then I contact progress and they allow me to go backstage for my 
you know, second show backstage shooting there and I'm meeting all those guys. And you just, you just keep a level of professionalism. So when I shot my first show backstage in progress in Camden, in London, my MO was to not get in the way and not make a tit of myself and just not, not upset anyone and do as high a quality job as I possibly could. And that means being quick, being efficient and being professional. And that's all I wanted to do. So, uh, for that first show, I didn't take any lights. I just, I shot in a doorway with a little bit of natural daylight behind me. And it's a project that I've never returned to since. But what I did was I, I waited until the end of the match. The guys came back through the curtain and I positioned myself about 10 yards away from gorilla position, which is where they come back through after their match and asked them to stand for me, counted to three in my head shot as many pictures in those three seconds as possible and then asked them to move on. And I was literally, because I wanted to create a, an air of realism. So it wasn't a setup promo. It was a, these are what these guys are like immediately after the match. Look how tired they are. Look how worn out they are. Look at those scars. Look at the fact that one of the guys in the shots couldn't get a splinter out of his eye because he'd just been hit over the head, you know, with like a, a wooden chair and he had a splinter in his eye. But that was those three seconds. That was that moment. Because I, I wanted moments that I couldn't then go back and recreate they were just moments that happened sure um, you're documenting the experience documenting yeah exactly what happened you know backstage you know um, there's a guy employed by wwe at the moment uh, killian dane who used to wrestle under the name of big demo he thought i was videoing him so he cut a promo on me in those three seconds <laughs> really into camera and then i was like right three seconds are up he's like oh i haven't finished my promo mate did you get everything i'm like no i was taking photos <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh yeah so i and and then you know you because i wasn't getting in the way and because i was i was, I was again giving those photos out for free on social media to sort of say hey look at these photos from the last progress show that was getting traction and then when i went back to progress to say can i come to the next show they're like yeah of course because you're adding to the product and you know you're not you know it's it's, it's a two-way street um mm -hmm. so i mean that's i think that's the way the way getting into into wrestling is just to <laughs> we've said it before like be nice you know don't check your ego and just and just go around and say hello to everyone and you realize at a wrestling show that everyone's the team there's no hierarchy there apart from the promoter everyone else is you know everyone else is working together to produce the best possible experience and show they possibly can you know and you just need to be respectful of everyone yeah i mean at the end of the day we're just a human beings interacting with each other. Yeah. But I think if you like break it down that simplistically, then it's like, yeah, no shit. Like kindness, respect, like th these things are obvious, but I can imagine, uh, many people out there, uh, it, it's, they, they have the goal in mind, but, but the strategy, the tactic, the approach, it's, it's, it's clouded in some way. And, and look, look, I, I'm not, everyone's cup of tea. I'm not attempting to be everyone's cup of tea, but, but for me, I at least try to, to, uh, just deploy respect and, and, and understand that like, no matter what, whether there is like a social hierarchy of sorts, it's like, we all experience heartbreak, you know, like we're all going to die. Uh, we all have like get excited about stuff. Like we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, it's owning that within yourself, but, but acknowledging that within the other, that, that can help uh, just not only like make these, these interactions with others, uh, 
more successful depending on what your goals are, but just more enjoyable, just a more enjoyable life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's just, I think also, I think like years of photographing families and particularly interacting with dads who maybe it wasn't their idea to have the family portrait. They're not that happy about being there. They know it's going to cost them a ton of money, you know, and, and you're, you're the guy that's going to make them pay that money. You know, um, I think interacting with those and getting those dads on side is maybe like a skill set that I've maybe learned to use in the wrestling industry, you know, to sort of like to, to, to get these guys trust to the point now where like four years later, where they're, you know, I'm, providing prints for them for their 10 by eights and they're seeking me out at shows and they're healing me with their ideas and we're working together. And, you know, it's, it's now a, it's a collaborative thing, you know, rather than me going begging, sort of begging for people to work with. Um, and it's, and it's a real pleasure. It's cool, man. I see one of the keys to your success is that, you know, whether it was, uh, uh, working with the families in photography and, and understanding the, the role of, of the father in that situation, or whether it was, you know, working in, in a market or whatever, the most mundane of experiences, there's always value to extract from it. And there's always connections to, to how you can, uh, kind of get that value in whatever experience and, and apply it to, to whatever it may be in life. Uh, like it's, not not to be like hippy dippy but like like it is all connected in a way and yeah. and at the end of the day like you are who you are uh through and through like whether it's this experience at, at 16 or a wildly different experience at age 40 um like it's still you and it's still your story it's all connected in that way and and i think uh it, that that perspective at least has helped me because uh, we, we often talk about this, but I know uh, dozens of musicians that had some degree of success uh, in their late teens and early 20s. And when that career didn't quote work out, it's almost as if they felt like they had to start over without acknowledging or owning all the skills that, that they acquired along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I think in our industry, oh, sorry, uh, uh, people really buy people. And people, mm -hmm. like you say, into it, into experiences. And like, we try and create an experience, you know, in, for our family portraits, we try and create an experience. I want to create an experience so that when the kids go home for the week between when they leave and when they come back to view their images, the kids are just talking about how much fun they had in the session. And when can we go back and see the silly photography man who made us laugh? You know, that, that's all I want to do because then they're being reminded at home by the parents about how much fun it was. And so many parents come back and say to us, my God, we weren't looking forward to that. But that was the most fun we've had with the kids in ages, just having our pictures taken and playing silly games, you know. And then when you can create great images as well and a great product that, you know, then you've, you've, you've got the recipe for success, really. It's, it's cool, man. For me, I mean, not only is that the right thing to do, but it's also good business. And and it's just cool to, to hear you share the, your mindset in 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 growing your art and, 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 and building a career of your art. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, even for me, it's, it's inspiring. Um, look, James, I know it's, it's nearing one thirty AM for you on your time. <laughs> it is. Um, there, there still are a few questions. So maybe I'll go, we can, I'll go, I'll go on if you want, or if you want to cut it, I can cut it. It's fine. Okay. No, let, let's kind of rip through these. Let's go through. Um, okay. Um, round. yeah, man, let's do this. I'm going to um, get a lollipop so I can have a sugar hit. Wonderful. Go for it. Uh, what flavor is that lollipop, by the way? It's a refresher one, which is kind of like a candy out here. 
Um, what a refresher refresher it's called it's not particularly refreshing but it's kind of like a it's, it's a bit fruity i suppose um have you ever heard of love hearts no love hearts are sweets that you get in a tube they're all on like little discs and they have little words written on them like i love you or be mine oh they're like they're chalk tastes like chalk tastes like chalk yeah basically like that <laughs> i'm eating a lollipop that tastes like sugary chalk there you go mm. um Okay, this lightning round. Go for uh, it. We've got we've got Brett Brett Gettlin. Uh He asked you, James, uh, which performer that you've worked with uh, was most passionate about their project, um, and which performer has helped you with input uh, on style or direction for a specific project. Okay, um, Marty Skull is supremely driven with his vision. Uh, as to what he wants to achieve, and when we when we get together, it's like a perfect storm of you know, just really getting that across. Um, he, he has, and, and his, the beauty of Skrull is the fact that he, he doesn't imitate and he's constantly evolving as a performer and as a personality. And he, and I remember asking him, so this heel thing, sorry, so this villain thing, is it, are you a good guy or a bad guy? And he said to me, I'm the villain. Mm -hmm. I'm playing, I'm creating a character. I'm creating the villain. You're coming to see the villain. And whether you boo me or cheer me, that's up to you. The most passionate, the, the most well thought out like guy in pro wrestling in terms of a mind that I've worked with is Jimmy Havoc. Mm -hmm. um, we shot a calendar for him last year, which was based on 12 horror movies. So we dressed him up in scenes from horror movies. My favorite shot from that was Halloween. We recreated a scene from Halloween where um, the main protagonist is um, stood sort of just behind a hedge in like suburbia and um we found a hedge that was almost identical in just outside of london and um <laughs> jumped him out of a car put the overalls on him slung the mask on him and just quickly stood him behind this hedge which was like in this person's garden because <laughs> we didn't want to knock and ask for permission we just figured we'd just ask for forgiveness if they asked us what we were doing and, right. uh, and yeah i literally i shot that picture in five seconds and it was like my favorite picture and i just took so much time over all the other <laughs> shots in the project and it was literally a point of like we didn't go to this location with that in mind we were driving past it and i said this that's the hedge that's the hedge get out get out yeah. let's do the shot you know so that's great but jimmy's mind for the business and mind for the, the way you hear him plan stuff out and his psychology behind things is just is mesmerizing. Uh, Trent Seven's another one. Trent's got such a handle on what crowds will react to and when. So I've heard him and Will Ospreay backstage going, th you know, I'm not pulling too much back here, but, but going through things and saying they'll, they'll, they'll pop for this or they'll chant this here. And then I've watched the match and that exact thing has happened their control and their way that they know crowds is amazing. And Trent's one of the funniest guys ever. And Will is unintentionally one of the funniest guys I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. I had the pleasure of, of, uh, you know, working with him to some degree, uh, with, with a few of Ring of Honor shows, uh, it's cool, man. But a lot of, it's just, uh, what's, what's cool about the UK and, and, and the culture in general. And what I really respect about it, it, it seems like you guys are, uh, it's just very contemporary. Um, and, and someone like Marty Skrull really, really, uh, like stands out. Uh, and, and for those to, to give you some context, uh, at, at the, the ring of honor show, uh, this upcoming weekend, super card of honor, uh, which James will be at Marty's challenging for the ring of honor world championship. 
Uh-huh. And so, I mean, he's, he's, he's big time. And, and probably the first time that I found you, James, was, was the portrait of him in a suit in an ocean. <laughs> and, and I've, I've always been uh, just, I found him to be so fascinating because uh, in many ways, pro wrestling culturally can, I think, be a bit behind of the times uh, aesthetically and otherwise. Uh, and, and he's someone, and I've, and I've listened to him on podcasts and, and understanding his, his goals and his mindset. Uh, it's just, uh, it's what I really appreciate about him. What I appreciate about you uh, and, and a lot of uh, these men and women coming from the UK. Uh, it's you guys just feel contemporary and have the finger uh, on the pulse of, of culture. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Marty's always been up for ideas as well, which is cool. I think the C thing was mine. It was one of the rare, rare, rare times where I actually came into it with the initial concept. Um, it, it, you're just trying to. I want to create stuff that people want on their wall. You know, like and, and, I mean, I remember that. That that's a that's still one of the most amazing things to me is when fan one fan sent me a photo and her entire bedroom wall was covered in my work, all framed. They'd gone, to, they'd gone to the effort of buying it and framing it and putting it up there. And then fan art is another thing. Like a fan art, the fans, you know, when they tag me in the picture as well as the talent that they've, because I'll, I'll take a photograph of someone and then they'll just do their watercolor or their drawing or whatever of it. And it's just like, wow, I, that, you know, that's affected someone. That, 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 that's, that's, you know, that's one of the most endearing things people can share with me, genuinely. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, so, so moving on in, in what likely is not becoming a lightning round, but, but, uh, <laughs> valuable and entertaining nonetheless. Um, <laughs> uh, Braden Harrington, uh, a cool guy who, who actually is a, a contributor to postwrestling.com. Oh, cool. Uh, he's interested. And, and as, as am I, uh, do you have a specific approach when shooting action shots of wrestlers like a Will Ospreay, as you mentioned, or the young bucks? Cool. Thank you, Braden, for your question. The Young Bucks, uh, my goal is to not get in the way and get hurt with regard, because you just never know where they're coming from, what they're doing. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people, James, are realized listening to this, you know, when you're, you don't just do portraits backstage. I mean, you're, you'll be ringside in, yeah. in New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, you're, and, and these, it, it's, it's unpredictable. Uh, you don't really know what's, what's happening. And, and pro wrestling is different in 2018 than when maybe a lot of people listening last saw it in 1998. And it's, it's highly acrobatic and athletic. Yeah, it is. And you, I mean, I remember on my first night with ring of honor, I nearly got kicked in the head by Jay Briscoe just cause he came through the middle rope halfway down and I just didn't see that coming. And, it, it, and that was like my first match. And I'm like, okay, let's, okay, let's have a bit of a, rethink of this um in new york i got caught in the barricade and i couldn't get out i was caught during the briscoes dudley tommy dreamer hardcore match mm -hmm. i had the announce table on my left hand side i was uh, up against the barricade against my back in the corner and in front of me um jay's attacking bully ray's head with a cheese grater and I've got this great shot and you can see me on camera how far away I am. I use this in seminars all the time and I'm like, I had no option but to shoot it because I couldn't move, couldn't go anywhere. 
and I've got this beautiful shot of, of I can't remember whether it was Jay or Mark, but one of the Briscoes holding uh, Bully Ray's head. Um, oh, just like a sacrificial lamb. It was just, it's a brilliant shot. I love it. Um, and you, you, that's the beauty of ringside. You just never know what's going to happen. It's all improvised. And like, in terms of uh, Kazarian, like Kazarian coming around the ring and telling me to sit down because <laughs> like, I took a knee and he said that's right you better you better sit down it's kind of thing and just like that sort of you know not being part of the show but just like you just they, they it's just it's just it's just it's so improvised and so different to anything else I could ever be asked to do in photography you know which is you know which is cool but look Will Ospreay um I which was the second part of the question I I know from I've seen fifty Will Ospreay matches probably live. I know roughly what he's going to do. So there's certain spots where I know what where I need to be and how I need to shoot and what lens I need to use. But I can still not watch a Will Ospreay match and not have my jaw hit the floor. It's incredible. The guy is phenomenal. Not phenomenal. We, the guy is amazing. He's just so remarkable in his natural athleticism. He's utterly fearless. He does things you will not, you do not believe could happen. You can't believe the human body can do the things that he does. Mm -hmm. uh, he's so quick. He's and he's such a lovely guy. He's such a lovely guy, and it's just you know, God bless him. He's just he's 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 a remarkable talent. One in a yeah. million. One in a million. Will the, the word that comes to mind uh, in his movement? One, one, one would be fluid. Yeah. Uh, but but at the final battle show that that we met in New York, uh, it was I, I liked a lot that he was the first talent to come out that night mm -hmm. uh, when the show started proper, uh, and he was, and it was one of those. Were were you and I together? I don't know if we were. Uh, we were getting, maybe I was with the videographer. We were getting a shot from the balcony of the opening. Yeah. Uh, and to watch him come out, he just was so at ease. Mm -hmm. He just seemed just, just so natural and just present, uh, in, in his performance and in his movement. And it was really a treat to watch that. Um, also I want to, I want to give love to, to Mike Sell, who's uh, one of the cameramen for Ring of Honor, in that in that Briscoes uh, and Bully Ray Tommy Dreamer match that you referenced, uh, he took a trash can to the chest uh, <gasps> while holding a heavy camera and having the responsibility to make sure that uh, what what he was picking up was being broadcasted to the world. See, we're see, we're all hardcore in, in Ring of Honor. We're all yeah, yeah, no, we're all professionals, you know. It's it's and to your point, it's it's unlike like unlike anything else. It really is. Uh, yeah. It's really special. Uh, and speaking of wrestlers and and Ring of Honor in particular, we are going to finish uh, with with a question from Rhett Titus, oh, cool. who uh, works as part of the tag team the Dogs yes. and someone that you shot a, a portrait of. Yes. Uh, in in Philadelphia, so so Rhett asks. Uh, how does it feel knowing that ROH likes the quality of your work so much that, you know, we're willing to bring you overseas uh, to, to come document what we do? I'm just trying to take a breath and take it in every time I'm there, genuinely. And that's not coming from a point of like faux modesty. I, you, it's, I couldn't have 
like, so you go, I go back to the point I made. I started the project in 2014 to get a photograph on any wrestling poster and to have a wrestler sit on my sofa and watch WrestleMania. Within two years, I was on a plane with wrestlers to go to WrestleMania. It's incredible. You know, and that's, and it's, you know, and, and it, I don't, I, I genuinely can't put it into words, like in terms of like, I just keep, I, I didn't believe it was happening. There's a, Johnny Storm is a, is a wrestler in the UK who used to, who used to wrestle um, over in America with Jody Fleisch back in the early 2000s. Amazing guy, amazing talent. And um, he's got a saying, which is, uh, don't believe you've got that international booking until you're sat on the tarmac on the plane. So I remember my first flight out there and I'm like, I remember thinking that, thinking they just get I remember going to the ticket booth and going, this ain't gonna, this code won't work. I'm not getting a ticket on that plane. This is all nonsense. <laughs> and then you're sat on the plane and then you're out there. And then when you're, you're out there, you're introduced to everyone. And it's like the higher up the ladder you go in terms of working with promotions, the more professional it is. So normally, so, you know, like sometimes you'll turn up at a show and they won't even know you're, that you're, supposed to be there or they haven't set any room to one side for you and my first show with ring of honor it's like oh look here's everyone here's everyone from the bottom up this is james uh and i'm being introduced which was absolutely lovely and then you know there's like oh, here's your space and we've cornered it off for you and someone's going to go and get the talent for you that never happens that shouldn't happen to me i'm absolutely overwhelmed and honored to do this because it is the dream the dream is to find something you enjoy doing and find a way to get someone to pay you to do it. Uh, I, I think you just brought us to the natural close of episode 52, my friend. That was my go home. <laughs> yeah, man. You went, you went home strong. And, and not only are you, uh, are you kind of bringing a close to, to this episode, but a full year of chocolate croissants. Well, you deserve a golf clap of admiration, a round of applause from me here in the UK. One year is a hell of an achievement. I know what it, I mean, I've, I've started a YouTube channel and I'm struggling to get to double figures and keep on schedule. So to do a year, bravo to you and all of your team over there. I appreciate that. As we limp to the, <laughs> to the finish line, as, uh, as my, my partners, Justin and Matt are, are off doing other things in the world. Um, but, but again, the, the strength of, of collaboration, uh, the strength of vision. And, uh, and as you said, this was a dream that we had, uh, and no one but ourselves would, would have prevented us from achieving it. Exactly. And I think, is this not a theme that's coming back to you in all your podcasts that you're in charge of your destiny and you've got to do it? Of course it is. Yeah. And, and cause at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not your dad or your mom's dream, uh, or, or your teachers or the, the culture or the presidents, uh, like it's yours because they're not going to do it for you. They're not going to live it for you. Mm. Um, and you, my friend are, are living proof of that. And which is why, uh, I, and, and I'll speak on behalf of Matt and Justin, cause they're very well aware of your story. Uh, we're honored to, uh, have had the privilege to share your story to our audience and the world. I'm just delighted. I'm delighted to be asked. Thank you very much. Yeah, dude. So a week from now, we'll be in New Orleans together. Whoop whoop! Can't wait. Oh, right. jazz That's bars be and oh, jazz bars and food and whiskey and wrestling and it's going to be awesome. I cannot wait. I've heard so many good things about New Orleans. It's uh, it's where I chose to spend my thirtieth birthday. Was it really? If that means anything. 
that's uh that's it and it's it's not is is it norlins not new orleans i try and pronounce every vowel in it i shouldn't do that should i uh maybe just stick with nola nola there you go <laughs> there you go I, I think you can slice that six different ways fantastic uh but that that is where i will see you next uh in person so i'm looking forward to that uh and dude like the internet's crazy and technology, like what we just recorded will live forever. And someone six years from now will listen to it. And I guarantee will be inspired by your story and hopefully execute on whatever makes them feel most alive. So thank you in advance for providing that gift. That means a lot. It's a total pleasure. Thank you. Hey guys, Jordan here. One last time, if you hadn't had enough of me, to close out episode 52. Uh, real quick, thanks again to James Musselwhite. I had a really nice time chatting with him. I look forward to seeing him this weekend in New Orleans. And check the episode notes, either on the website or on your podcast app right now, uh, to find all the different ways that you can connect with James online. Uh, again, portraitofarrestler.com is his home base on the internet. Uh, if you noticed, we had a lot of questions from our friends in the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. That is our home base on the internet for chocolate croissants. We're nearing 1,700 members. For me, it is uh, the coolest thing, the most rewarding thing about this entire project, uh, just to connect with so many people around the world. It's a private group for a reason. That way we can create a safe space uh, for to help each other, to communicate with each other, and to feel connected to each other as well. It's very inspiring. So if you'd like to join, uh, click the button. We'll accept you. And then uh, feel free to jump into the conversations. Also, Chocolate Grissons, whatever podcatcher you have, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Google Play, there's dozens of them. Uh, if you search Chocolate Grissons, there should be a subscribe button. If you do that, it helps us and it can help you. That way, when you're asleep Sunday night, and kinetic to Wi-Fi, it will automatically download into your phone, and then you won't have to use your data when you're driving to work or working out in the gym or whatever you may be doing on Monday morning. Again, every single Monday morning, we've been doing this for a year straight. So next week, Matt, Justin, and I will be together. We will be celebrating one year of chocolate croissants. We will be including those in the Facebook group. So today or tomorrow is an opportune time to join the group, and you can be part of what will be a celebration of one year of this project. We can't do it without you. We couldn't have done it without you. That would be pretty lonely and kind of miserable to have done it in a vacuum, just the three of us recording audio and then sharing it with ourselves. Why I take it to a dark place like that, I don't know, but I kind of like it. Anyway, thanks again. We're so grateful for your attention uh, for this episode and every episode. We will be here next week. We're still going. The train rolls on. Come join us. Uh, has anyone seen that new Wes Anderson film, The Dogs? I'm interested. Let me know in the Facebook group. All right. Road, one last time, RODE.com. I'm using their microphone right now. Much love to them. Much love to you. And until next week for episode 53, bye-bye. Uh,